Welcome to The End Game, a podcast about the positive aspects of aging with grace, with joy, and with purpose. I'm your host, Don Auction. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get on with today's show. On today's podcast, you'll meet the author of the book, Stupid Things I Won't Do When I Get Old. But first, Susie Kaufman shares an essay about imagining her father as a Paleolithic hunter-gatherer. My mother and father slept in separate beds. Between them, a stack of detective novels and crossword puzzle books teetered on the night table. In the morning, my father would sit on the edge of his bed, fish around for his slippers, and shuffle into the kitchen, where my mother was boiling water for the instant Maxwell house mixing the minute made and tearing apart the English muffin. Never cut an English muffin. Once he settled in at the kitchen table, he turned on the crackly transistor radio. He had gone all the way with Adelaide back in 52, but most Americans liked Ike, and some even had a soft spot for Joe McCarthy. It was best to keep your head down, go to the shop, Come home from the shop, eat your dinner, and watch Father Knows Best, though he could hardly identify with the clean-shaven suburban protagonist, and certainly not with the sentiment conveyed by the title. When I think about my father, the pendulum of my memories swings from affection to discomfort and back again. He was a decent man, but his animal nature, his essential wildness was somehow attenuated, left behind in a remote corner of a prehistoric past life. While he listened to the news, my mother would lay out his clothes, boxers, sleeveless undershirt, trousers, belt, shirt freshly pressed at the Chinese laundry, tie and tie clips, sports jacket, socks, and cordovans. She bought and dispensed all of his clothes. He did not say, I feel like wearing the green tie today. She managed his wardrobe like a pitching rotation, varying only in the event of injury, a spot of Poplar's gravy on the scheduled tie. In the wall-to-wall mid-century malaise of the apartment on Upper Broadway, there was no room for Daddy. Everything had its place, dinner at six. My father didn't drive. A few times a year on a Sunday holiday, could be Father's Day, Uncle Jerry or Uncle Leo would chauffeur us in a two-tone Chevy and head north and west, crossing the George Washington Bridge into the untamed wilderness of Englewood or Nyack, where people had basketball hoops attached to the sides of their garages and barbecues for roasting marshmallows and kosher hot dogs. In the kitchen, resplendent with breakfast nooks and the glossy patina of waxed linoleum, the women would arrange bowls of potato salad and dishes of pickles, while in the backyards, the children swatted at mosquitoes and the men tended the fire. You could see my father, eyes watering from some combination of smoke and wistfulness, staring into the blaze 
like Paleolithic man the day he first discovered the sorcery of rubbing two sticks together. Pinochle games would come and go. Someone would have a second drink and tell a very bad old joke, salacious enough to induce smirking, but obscure enough to leave the children bewildered. Someone else would make a thinly veiled racist remark, and still my father would be staring at the fire. His fixed gaze left you wondering what he was looking at in there. Some vision of the hunt, a large carnivorous animal tramping around in the bush, while he, Sidney Rosenberg, stands behind a leafy tree, waiting for just the right moment to hurl a rock that fells his prey and provides the family dinner. There he is in Bergen County with his hands clasped behind him, rocking back and forth on his heels, the blood in his veins mingling with the dimly remembered blood of a creature he would eat, the smell of the flesh rising to his nostrils with the grilling Hebrew national franks. He sees his haunches draped in the skins of some previously slaughtered beast. He is close to them, the animals, eating them, wearing them, always on the lookout, his vision and hearing sharp, penetrating the deep silence of the forest, not overwhelmed by the wailing of sirens on the avenue, the constant burbling of the television. After all, the survival of the family depends on his acuity, his speed and strength. He is his most authentic self, singeing his eyebrows in front of the fire. Then, with regret, as the light begins to fade in some cousin's backyard, my father drags himself away from the embers and submits to Manhattan, a short man engulfed by tall buildings. Susie Kaufman is the author of the book Twilight Time, Aging in Amazement, from which this essay was drawn and which you can find on Amazon. You can also read Susie's work at susiekaufman.substack.com. I'm honored and delighted to have as my guest today Stephen Petro, an award-winning journalist and author who is known for his New York Times and Washington Post essays on aging, health, and civility. Stephen hosts and produces The Civilist, a podcast from Public Radio International and North Carolina public station WUNC. More to our point today, however, he is the author of Stupid Things I Won't Do When I Get Old. Stephen, welcome to The Endgame. Thanks, Don. It's a pleasure to be with you today. I enjoyed your book quite a lot. There were lots of laugh-out-loud moments, as well as a few painful cringes when I recognized something I was already doing. Mm-hmm. Let me ask, how did this book come about? Well, that's a great question, and I'm a little embarrassed about how it came about. Came about. When I um, was in my early 50s, my parents had moved into their early mid-70s, and I was the number one son, being meaning the eldest and a little bit of a smart ass, and I saw that they were doing things that I thought were kind of stupid as they approach their various aging issues. And um, so I started keeping this list of what I was going to do better than they did. 
and the list kind of grew and it grew and it had some silly things on it. Like, um, I'm not going to color my hair anymore because that turned into, uh, an expensive disaster and diverted me from the road of authenticity to, um, to making plans for when I might not be able to live independently. So, um, Anyway, this list grew and then it became a New York Times column where I contribute and it really seemed to get people's attention because I got about 200 lists from other people. And so I recognized a lot of people are spying or snitching to themselves about their parents and their elders. But the point being that we all wanted to do things better. And, um, and I was the only one who went public. And then the book, the book kind of um, organically grew out of that. So do you see it as a guide for people dealing with aging parents, or is it more a warning for people who aren't old yet, but getting there? You know, it's a little bit of both um, of those, as well as what I've been finding. It's kind of a, a medium for parents who may be in their 60s and 70s to talk with there are kids who may be somewhere between their 30s and their 50s. So it's, 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 in a way, it's a bridge. It's a bridge book is the way I've come to see it. And I've, I've talked to um, a number of like mothers and daughters who are reading it together and using it as a way to begin these conversations that can be difficult, you know, whether it's about just getting older, um, disability, you know, making various um, life plans. So, um, so I'm glad that it's been able to be useful in that way. That's that's encouraging. It's nice, a nice thing to <laughs> it is. to happen. Let me talk about a few of the examples of things that you won't do and and why you won't do them. Mm -hmm. All right. Sure. All right. So this one this one grabs me the hardest. Double space after periods. Yes, that one really has gotten people under people's skin or whatever. So, Don, you and I have learned how to type on a typewriter and you had i'm sure you know uh, the chip was implanted in your brain to double space after a period my grandmother was my my grandmother was my typing teacher and as i sit here today i can hear her telling me double space well computers do not require double spacing so we don't need to do it anymore and uh the point of that chapter is we have to adapt to technology. We want to embrace technology. We want to use it to stay connected and also not to mark us as, as outcasts or out of the swim in some way. So it's, it's a metaphor about, about the double spacing becoming single spacing. It's really about you know, learning some of the rudimentary things, um, you know, some of these things like the Twitter, uh, which I say in jest here, but uh, you know, so that we can stay in better communication with people that we care about and that they can reach out to us. Good. Um, I, I think anybody who masters the inner tubes is, is doing great. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, and it's hard to make some of these changes and the, the whole book is about small changes leading to, uh, to sort of larger outcomes. And if we take a small step here and a small step there, um, you know, I'm hoping that people will recalibrate how they understand what it means to be old and also begin to associate positive things with being older rather than the slew of negative attributes that we ascribe to it. All right. On, on that score, uh, here's another one. I won't lie about my age, even on dating apps. So I am a relatively recent 
divorcee. Um, and when I started going out on apps, um, which was an entirely new thing for me because I'd been with my husband for 15 years and that was before, the last time I was single was before apps. And uh, um, I noticed that this very good friend of mine from college was suddenly 10 years younger than me on one of these apps. And I was like, well, how did that happen? And then, you know, we talked and he said, well, you know, I can't get anyone to talk to me if I say I'm 60. So I'm telling them that I'm 50. And I go, well, you know, you don't look so great for 50, but you look fine for 60. <laughs> and this kind of, you know, just sort of became this practice for me of, you know, I don't want to be ashamed about being 64, which is what I am now. And, um, I, you know, I put it out there and, you know, if someone is going to be attracted to me, you know, the, the age or the number comes with that. And, um, you know, that's part of who I am and that's part of who all we are. And, and then it's just hard to, it's hard to lie, you know? Well, it's hard to keep up with the trail that you have to, that you have to clean up after yourself if you make one lie, right? Well, and this, this friend who was 10 years younger, you know, he had, so then he had to like do this whole like project. So that meant he graduated from college 10 years later and who was president then and what songs did he listen to? I mean, it's way beyond, you know, any, any amount of deception I could have embraced or accomplished. <laughs> He's still single. <laughs> okay. Well, th there's a lesson there. Um, and he's 52 now, probably. <laughs> uh, here's another. I won't lie to my doctor anymore. What's that about? Uh, well, so this was an observation from, from my parents who really like to be compliant patients and have their doctor think that they were doing everything that they were supposed to do. And they weren't. And uh, that meant sometimes not taking medications, not doing physical therapy, so on and so forth. But they um, they were untruthful. And my father in particular got into a little bit of trouble when he stopped taking his high, his high blood pressure medication and wound up having to go to the hospital and nearly stroked out. So, you know, I, I, there I am trying to um, tell all of us, you know, we want our doctors to be our partners in this 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 chapter. And if we're not going to give them the straight up information, then we're going to have a, a troubled partnership. I, I, I don't exempt myself from many of these things. And that, that was one because I have um, sometimes not been compliant in my medication. And, you know, writing this book has caused me to make certain pledges that I try to keep now on a daily basis. And I am, I would say now I'm 98% um, compliant and truthful with my doctor when I can reach her, you know, on the phone or by email. Okay. Um, I won't get my knickers in a twist at OK Boomer. Ah, uh, yes. So remember that from a couple of years ago when it was this big diss of, of boomers and it was basically younger people kind of giving, I don't know, the middle finger to boomers and um, with, with a little bit of um, shade and sarcasm. And, you know, what I what I really came away from that was that we have left a world that is quite troubled to the next couple of generations. And uh, instead of being like patted on our back for all the great things that we have accomplished, of which there are many, we also need to take responsibility for uh, the state of the world and what kind of legacy we are leaving folks. So the notion here is don't take umbrage at that. Think a little bit deeper about what we can do in the um, in the 
I'm going to say the remaining time, the chapters that we have left to make for a better world, to make for a world that um, perhaps is more hospitable when it comes to climate or to justice or some of the issues that many people care about. I always found OK Boomer to be rather ageist. It is an ageist thing. But if that's the only thing that we take away from it, we're missing part of what is being said in, in that message. Um, other types of ageism are, um, are, are even are more odious. And so I have this birthday card. I had a birthday a couple of months ago right here. And there are two cows. Did you know that as you get older, your hearing and eyesight begin to fail? And um, one of them has sort of a mock hearing aid. And then inside, the print is so, so tiny. Um, so what do you think of your musical birthday card? So I don't hear anything when I open this. So it's making fun of various attributes of, of older people that are generally associated with us. You know, we, we don't hear well, we don't see well, we don't think well, we don't know how to use technology well. And these are stereotypes. Stereotypes are always rooted in some truth, but they are not truth. And... The problem really is that many older people begin to absorb them and think that they are true. And that is how they come to think about themselves so that I'm on this path now where I'm not going to be able to do any of those things well. And, you know, I'm, I'm done. And uh, that's not true. Uh, we have a lot of we have a lot of choice. We can go to, you know, we can go to um, an audiologist, if we think we have um, hearing troubles, we can get that aid, which we're often resistant to. But the thing about um, ageism that's internalized is that hurts our health. It hurts our mental health and it cuts short our longevity. And in the research I did, I was really shocked to learn that if we have negative associations with being older, we may live seven and a half years less long than someone who thinks it's a great thing, a positive thing. And that's as dangerous as being a smoker. So that's real. So that's a real important reason why I wrote this book, to try to wake people up to that fact. Excellent. Um, I have another here. Uh, I won't let a walker ruin my life. <laughs> um, my poor mom, she needed a walker at a certain point. And she also loved to be an extrovert and to go places and, and um, she just could not embrace that walker. And what happened was it made her world smaller as a result. And I kept saying, you know, I kept saying, you know, this is the smarty pants in me. You know, mom, you know, you'll be able to do this and you'll be able to go to your bridge game, you know, if you have a little bit more mobility. And yes, it's not the most, you know, it's not the most beautiful device in the world, um, but it's functional and um you should try to use it. You know, it was very, it was very hard to, um, you know, to convince her of that. In the meantime, I had, a, I had a, another friend who was actually much older than my parents and she needed to walk her at a certain point. And she always had um, a real, a real kind of personal style. And she dressed that thing up as much as she was dressed up and it was colorful and flamboyant. And you, you know, we'd see the two of them, you know, well, there is Denise and her walker. Um, but she embraced this tool, which was really meant to help her stay connected. And um, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that I will be more like Denise than my mom in, in, in this circumstance, should, should the need arise. That sounds like a whole industry possibility, you know, people decorating walkers, you know, it, sell them okay. on the Internet. That and that, 
Yeah, and this well, there are some you know you can dress them up for various holidays and seasons, and and the Scandinavians you know who are so well known for their high design, they have begun designing a different breed of walkers and um, other types of devices that really are you know quite stylish and more likely to turn heads in a positive way once they get over here. Okay, uh, a couple more. Uh, I won't turn my house into a sweat lodge. Hmm. So many older people are cold all the time, and there are physiological reasons for that. There's nothing, you know, there's no comment on that. That's a fact. What is challenging is when they have others over, their house may be, or apartment may be like a sauna. And this is a very um, common thing. And um, you know, I talk about some friends that I knew. I would talk also about my parents who, you know, it was, the house was so warm. My nose was always bleeding. My father's nose was always bleeding and they were always cold. So you know, some of the solutions there are, you know, go to a doctor, try to understand what's going on with your body. And then there's some specific things that you can do to make yourself more comfortable and to make your guests feel more comfortable when they're in your environment. And um, you know, some of those for, for the older folks are, you know, if you, if you cut down on the alcohol intake, that's going to affect um, your metabolism and, and how your, what your body temperature is and, and, and a bunch of other things. So um, it's a little bit of pushing people to think beyond themselves, but also to think for themselves. Okay. And one more. I won't be unkind to those with dementia. So this one is, you know, is really a tale that, that applies to me. And when my, before my mother was diagnosed with dementia, she, um, she got a little batty and um, she did not have a diagnosis. And I remember there was one day I was standing next to her and the phone rang. We're in the kitchen. And I heard my friend say, may I speak to Stephen, please? And my mom kind of looked at me and looked around. And then she said, there is no Stephen here. And she hung up the phone. And so there I am next to her. And I, I was sure with her. I said, mom, like, what's going on? I'm right here. You know, what happened? And she looked at me and I could tell something was off, but I didn't know what it was at that point. And it was like, there was this fog or this be beginning of a fog. And, um, and I was irritated. Um, over time, she, she had a diagnosis and that was, um, you know, that was a helpful thing, if only because it allowed me and my siblings and others to, you know, to understand better what was going on and not to be judgmental about it. And if there was any, you know, if there was any remaining irritation, you know, I kept it inside, but it was also about losing my mom as, as the person I knew rather than any failings that she might be having, um, you know, on a Tuesday or Wednesday or getting into an argument with her about, is it Tuesday or is it Wednesday when it did not matter what day of the week it was, you know, mom, you can be right. Um, and if we're going to the doctor today, we're going to the doctor today. But that, that took some growing on my part, some empathy um, as well. And it was, it was tough. You started this book to be a book that was humorous, but along the way it became a lot more empathetic toward elders. Is, is that a fair take? That is, that is a fair take. And when I wrote the first draft, um, 
it was sort of consistently more humorous and a lighter book. Um, and then over time, and when I went back to it, by that point, my parents had both passed. So, um, so that gave me a different perspective on, on their lives and what they had been trying to do. And again, gave me greater empathy. Um, but especially as, you know, as they got into that last chapter, I could see that they, they struggled to do the best that they could with the tools that they had. And, you know, and I took away from that, you know, you can't do, you really can't do more than what you have access to, whether it's internally or, you know, in the world around you. And, um, you know, and they had fears, you know, as I have fears and as we all have fears. And so I, I did, um, certainly the last part of the book was, is very different than, than the way it started out. And um, people have said that it's in some ways a love letter to my parents by the time you get to that point. And, and I hope people think of it that way because um, that, is the, that is the feeling that I wound up uh, having for them by the time I finished this. Well, that's certainly the, the feeling that I came away with. And, and I appreciate, uh, having tried to be humorous many times myself, um, <laughs> And, uh, and knowing that it's so tempting to just go for the punchline and forget the humanity, uh, but you, you, went, you went to the honest route, I think. Well, thank you. You know, there, there, are plenty, there are plenty of points earlier on, like I talk about, I won't participate in the organ recital, which I participated right. in this very weekend, and the organ recital <laughs> is when folks our age, that we just start talking about everything that's going wrong. And I'm really not even talking about the serious stuff. And uh, it just takes up a whole evening and it's really not that interesting. And to anyone else who's not our age, it's off-putting and it's, it's defining us. And so in the way that if you look back, you know, we talk about our kids or we talked about our jobs or our vacations endlessly. It's a little bit of self-involvement. So I said limited to the time of one cocktail, one non-alcoholic drink, and, and then move on off this, uh, off this riff. So you <laughs> promise me you'll do that, Don? <laughs> Well, I was going to ask you. You, you're certainly not. Um, you're, you're in. You're getting older. We're all getting older. Mm -hmm. uh, how do, you, how do you feel that you're doing in terms of, of your own list? Do you feel like uh, you're well, adhering to your own lessons? <laughs> to be perfectly honest, um, you know, I kept adding to the list. I wrote the book, and then. I kind of skipped the step in my head where it might, the time might come to implement the list. And I'd say it was about a year ago when it finally dawned on me, it's time. You know, so I was 63 then, and I was, I was in my office, which is where I am now. And what happened was I had, a, I had a book on the top shelf here that I needed, and I didn't go get the stepladder. So I put one foot on, on the chair here and I put another foot on the desk. I was in stocking feet. I wasn't even wearing shoes. I still couldn't reach it. So then I'm kind of leaping up to get the book. And eventually I'm, I say to myself, this is one of those stupid things. This is how you fall. This is how you have a problem. So that started. So then I got the stepladder. I got the book and I made, I made that specific promise. But that kind of recalibrated me towards paying more attention to how do I implement these things. And, um, you know, and I do them imperfectly um you know one step at a time i've started the decluttering uh, that's endless 
Um, but uh, there are many things that, that we can do. And I think having an awareness of all of these things just helps us to make more right decisions in the moment than, than bad decisions. Wonderful. Let's, let's leave it at that. Okay. Um, Stephen, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, it was a real pleasure to talk to you. Likewise. Um, have a great day. All right. And Stephen Petro's book, Stupid Things I Won't Do When I Get Old, is available at Amazon.com. Thanks for listening to our podcast. You can also subscribe to our free weekly newsletter, The Endgame, at theendgame.substack.com. I'm Don Auction, wishing you all the best in aging with grace, with joy, and with purpose. I hope you'll join us for future programs here at The Endgame.